Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my interviews. Today's guest is Laura, and Laura is not Laura's real name. In this interview, Laura speaks about domestic violence, about spotting abusive behavior, about community, and about motherhood. And this is kind of a sub series in my gender, sexuality, and transition series that is seeking to speak to women about their experience and for me to understand better the issues that are tackled and attempted to be solved through the various feminisms out there. Because there isn't just one in my experience thus far. Here's Laura. How's your day going? Oh, not too bad. Uh, have the kids at school, and then I'll get all of them, mine and my roommate's kids, at the end of the day. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you guys, you guys have like a daycare share kind of thing? Yeah, we're two single moms at Combined Forces, and we share a house, and uh, it's it's worked out. It's worked out pretty well, but it is crazy on days when I have all of them. But it's good. They get to play together. It's a little bit of the community that... I experienced growing up. I don't think you see so much anymore. Oh, interesting. But, but it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It takes a village, but you're like you're like the whole village for those two hours or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for one evening. But then she's my village, and and it oh, works cool. out. It's yeah. it's definitely less work than if we were trying to do it in separate households. Did you um? You said like when you were in a community, were you in the close knit community growing up? Uh yeah. I was. I grew up in a very conservative Christian. Um, environment like um pentecostal um okay. christian so um so I had a small church that was very family like um just like a couple hundred people but uh but they were you know family like so there were always kids around always other moms we called all the family friends and uncle um you know and i miss that part of it i don't miss the religion but hmm. <laughs> but i hmm. i do miss that i do miss that having all the backup parents and kind of the non-related extended family do you think that such a community could exist without, like, a narrative structure that uh, religion provides? Um, I, I I want to say yes. Um, I want to say yes, but I think it's I think it's hard to find. Yeah. Um, I, I I think about that a lot, honestly, and I don't know how much of why we don't do that is ideological, and how much of it is economic. Because um, our, you know, our economic structures are very much built on, you know, kind of the nuclear family, you know, kind of very independent and separate. Um, and even beyond the the religious part, you know, um, most families can't afford for a mother to stay home or, you know, to have a parent staying home full time. Because a lot of the community was was that was stay at home moms who kind of banded together. Um, you know, so, so so there's that. But I think it's wonderful if you can manage it. Yeah. I. I um, more of my my Puerto Rican friends um, have a little bit more of that more generational homes, you know, even now, even in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the U.S. has uh, well, I guess the uh, the weird uh, white uh, Indo-European. Uh, I can't remember what that acronym is. Like it, it's a, like a watered down <laughs> wasp, but but like I guess the white culture is very atomized in a in a way, and I wonder. Yeah. 
If that, yeah. I mean, it, it's contrasted when you have other cultures come in and they do have like those multi generational homes and stuff like that. But I wonder if, with the economic realities going forward, with uh, you know housing prices and the job mm-hmm. market, if we'll slowly like regress back into a multi tiered uh, family. Yeah, I think it needs to happen. Um, And we see it a little bit more in the South um, with more people kind of staying close to their parents and that. Um, I'm not estranged from my parents, but they're still very religious and I'm very not and I'm a lesbian. So, you know, so I live far away and we do better this way. But um, Mm. so I'm probably a little bit more remote than, than even your average modern family. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, if we'll go that way or what it'll take for us to to give up that I, that idea of I succeed if I am alone. Yeah. Um, hmm. You know, it's incredibly hard to do that with children. Incredibly do you, difficult. Do you see that um, those different uh, kind of value structures in, in your children's generation and that generation, your college age child, like her independence uh, versus, I guess, community orientation? They're very community minded with their friends. Um, that's something that has been really nice to see. Um, they have uh, a lot of the very quirky, um, kind of liberal, um, you know, rainbow-haired friendships that that uh, that, that you that you might expect. Um, yeah. And you know, and, and I, but I like that they really do rely on each other. You know, they'll reach out to me and say, "How do I support this friend? How do I do this?" Um, my son's uh, living on campus at college. And, you know, he talks about how, you know, someone's having a hard time, they just go over there and they help them out. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that. And, and that's kind of one of the positive things about this kind of um, counterculture that we're seeing develop that, you know, I have some concerns about. But I think it's positive that they kind of have formed a community and have formed some familial support for each other. And I think that's something that, you know, if we're going to counter some of the negative and concerning parts of that culture we also have to acknowledge that they are meeting each other's needs you know in some important ways we can't devalue that are you talking about lgbtq uh tumblr generation kind of yes yes very much so yeah that um you know i don't agree with um you know their their viewpoint on on gender or how they have deconstructed um homosexuality to kind of be about being attracted to people's identities, people's genders, mm. but I do like that they're reaching out to each other and that they're supporting each other. Um, and I think that sometimes it's a community that people are identifying into yeah. more so than the actual gender or the actual sexuality. Yeah. Um, it kind of gives you a pass to say, I belong here. You know, I have a place here. I'm of this place. Well, and, again, it goes back to my question. Can you have a community without some sort of narrative religious structure or not? And it seems like the gender ideology writ large, not gender and mm-hmm. sexuality itself, but the ideology itself forms an umbrella for people to, like, you know, adopt these certain terms and then understand, you know, like just ritualize some level right. of experience together. Well, I mean, we're, we're talking about calling out to sameness, right? You know, when it comes down to it, religion is a version of sameness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that whatever community you form, you're going to have that same whether you're related to those people, whether you worship those people, um, if you have the same sexual orientation as those people. Um, I think right now, though, we're just seeing a very limited um, kinds of samenesses that, you know, Mm. and you must be very much the same, um, but in Mm. a very specific way. Um, Like, I think that people can form communities, like we used to have lesbian communities, you know, and that is definitely same enough for people to be close together um you know it used to be just being women you know of a certain age or in a certain context was enough to 
to form a community. So I don't know that we necessarily need a deeply held religion, but we have to have something in common that we believe that this thing we have in common is more important than the things that are different about each other. Yeah. Um, you know, some kind of common thread that we value above the things that separate us. And, um, and right now, I think the list of things that we're allowed to put up there is very short. Hmm. And what, what do you think the consequence of having such a short list is? Um, I think people cling very tightly to the sameness they're allowed to value. Hmm. Um, I think that's why liberal doctrine is so narrow right now and so heavily policed, is that that's kind of the thread of community that people are holding on to, that they aren't allowed to have loyalty with people who don't we don't meet that standard, you know, and we don't have other forms of community that kind of, um, that can set aside our other differences. Um, and so that, but then we're saying, you know, well, as long as you follow, you know, the liberal, liberal doctrine, you know, according to you know, these specific issues, you know, it's okay if you disrespect women, you know, it's okay if, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I think we maybe should be setting up higher that we don't. Um, things that, that that should be the the things that matter the things that really and i'm not a huge fan of cancel culture but i i do think that there are some times that there comes a point where you have to say well maybe this person isn't somebody that we should you know be setting in the spotlight and hmm. and and making an example of um probably the biggest um one that, that kind of pops out for me the the, the situation that makes me believe that we need feminism today and anybody who questions it should just remember that Eminem won a Grammy for the Marshall Mathers LP, you know, in which he had that very graphic song in which he mm -hmm. fantasized about murdering his wife. Um, and Eminem performed at the Oscars this last weekend. So this person that has, you know, in very graphic, violent, horrible ways, mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, recorded this fantasy of of domestic violence and murder in front of his child. I don't know if you've ever listened to the song, but it's horrible. And the fact that I don't know that we need to cancel him altogether, but it should at least be something that is discussed. And it isn't. We're calling it art. Hmm. So, so I don't know. So I, you know, and, and so I don't know that there's never something that should should kind of take should kind of say, well, maybe this person is, you know, concerned. But I think right now the standards are probably a little bit too tight. To be fair, I mean, how yeah. I reached out to you was a thread that you wrote about, well, about prostitution. But there okay. seems to be uh, like that. The, the example that you're bringing up with Eminem is that you've witnessed violent misogyny. I'm, I'm guessing yeah. first person. It's a real issue to you. It's not fantasy at all. And to see it yeah. uh, celebrated and, and played with on this artistic yeah. level is deeply offensive to what you've gone through and what you've, yes. I'm, I'm guessing it's, here. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've, I've personally experienced it. Um, the name that I use online, I don't use my legal name. Um, uh, Laura was a friend of my family who was um, shot and killed by her husband in front of her sons. Um, and there was kind of a pattern of of emotional abuse kind of going on. People didn't really know what all was happening, but she was murdered. Um, and the other parts of my name are also after women who are murdered by their by their partners. Mm -hmm. um, I came to me out of a domestic violence situation um, where she was my, my roommate, okay. um, to my best friend, um, where she was 
you know, she was she was beaten. Her ribs were broken. Her her fingers were broken. Her hair was pulled out. Um, and I and it's really hard to an experience at the end of my marriage that fear where you don't know if the person that is scary to you in some ways is somebody that is going to punish you for leaving. You know, you don't know if you know because because the Laura, the real Laura. Um, there wasn't any signs that he was physically abusive. Um, you know, he was controlling, he was emotionally abusive, but when she was getting ready to leave, um, you know, he became suicidal and killed her and killed himself. And, and, and I lived with that fear for, for quite a while. I was in a custody battle. Um, and you know, and it's a real terror and that's, and it's common. Thousands of women in the U S die every year at the hands of their partners. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, hyper sanitize our music or, you know, or lift up women as angels in relationships, hmm. but also to recognize that, you know, women every day are, are living afraid. Um, they're living afraid with their partners or they've left and they don't know if, you know, I used to, I used to lay in bed and, and just kind of live in terror of, I would think, did I hear the door open? Did I hear the door open? You know, is, is today, is, is he going to come in and kill me? Hmm. Um, and, Fortunately, doesn't seem to be the case. I think that you know he's gone his his way, and I'm going mine, and and we've kind of settled things down. But you, but you don't know, you know, and you and you are scared because um, I think that that feature of fear is something that they want you to have. Um, you're not supposed to know what will happen if you cross them, if you defy them, mm-hmm. um, and and of course hashtag not all men, um, but the women living with it is very real for them. How did and, it? How does it happen that you recognize that those that the partner you're with or somebody you're dating or somebody you're going to be with has that in them? If that is a thing, is there a pattern of behavior? Is that something Absolutely. you can recognize Absolutely. early on? And- uh, small acts of control are a really good um, indicator early on. Um, a person who um, moves the speed of the relationship very quickly um, mm-hmm. a lot of times is kind of um, masking a different pattern of behavior that they don't want to show you at the beginning. Um, so they will, um, you know, they can they can maybe put on a show, but not for very long. So they'll probably push very quickly. Um, I met my ex-husband and uh, within a month and a half, we were living together. Um, about a month later, we were engaged. The next month I was pregnant. My daughter was born um, less than a year after we met. Hmm. Um, so, so there in, in the abuse really picked up once we were living together, once we were cohabiting, um, you know, so it kind of, as, as they become entrenched, it becomes more severe as they know it's harder for you to leave. They know that they can, you know, lean on it a little bit more. They, abusers know exactly how to take you up to that line and, and kind of stay at that line. Um, so I always tell women that, you know, if you have some kind of thing in your head about, well, if he does this, I'll leave. If he hits me, I'll leave. If he cheats, I'll leave. He knows that. He knows what your line is. Um, so you're, if you're being mistreated in smaller ways, that has to matter. There has to be a reason to leave. But um, small acts of control, um, lying, particularly if it seems lying for no reason, um, it's and it's really kind of a gut feeling. If you find yourself having this feeling like, I don't know about that. I better keep an eye on that. And if you hear yourself saying, well, that was bad, but if it keeps up, I can always leave later. It never gets easier to leave. That's what I tell people. And 
you know, it, it's also helpful, I think, to talk about, um, to have them talk about their previous relationships. Um, a lot of abusers, um, male abusers will accuse their female partners, their previous female partners of abuse. And I'm not saying that women don't abuse because they certainly can, particularly emotionally. But it's something to be aware of that is also a extremely common reversal tactic for people with a pattern of abuse. And if if you possibly can reach out to the last woman and get her side of it, um, whether you believe it or not, you don't have to, but at least you'll know what to look out for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, it's never too late to leave. You never, um, there were, it was years ago. I should have gone. I, I should have gone years ago. I should have gone after, you know, the second or third date, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter how long you stayed. It's never too late to leave. Um, you know, you're never too deeply entrenched. Um, you know, to find a way out. Did so, he, uh, did he catch you at a vulnerable time? Was there certain aspects that, um, ended up being abusive that were attractive to you and not just in like an emotional or sexual way, but like something that you needed, was there some sort of control that he exuded that you needed? And yeah. I'm trying to extrapolate into a general, like, do they, do abusers look for people who are at Are a real state? A real common thing for abusers to say is um, very early on when they first meet a woman, um, I really want to get married, I want to settle down, I have a, I want to have a family, saying that right out of the gate. Um, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't men, you know, good men who want to have families, but it is a common tactic for them to bring that right away. And I had um, been in uh, a string, I got, I'd been married very young. Um, I got married right after I turned 19, I was out coming out of the church, um, it wasn't a great situation, but it was okay, we just we're young and not right for each other. And, um, and then I came right out of that marriage into, um, a different situation that is, uh, complicated and not great. Hmm. But, um, and when I met my husband and met the, my last husband, I had kind of been in a string of, of spending time with people that either weren't available, that, um, weren't terribly, um, into me, as you would say, just not that into you, um, kind of, uh, kind of casual, kind of distance, so just very degrading connections, each kind of loose things. And I kind of told myself, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, I want to meet someone who's serious. I want to meet someone who values this, who wants to put, um, real work into, into love and to care about what happens. And so when he, um, I, I met, met him at a party at, um, a friend's party and you know, and he said, you know, I want to meet someone, I want to get married. Um, I'm just like, I really respect that this person, you know, has the vulnerability to say that they want to settle down, that they want to build something real. Um, and I would never have considered that to be um, a warning flag at the time. I had no idea. But having done more research and listened to more women about patterns of abuse, that is apparently very common um, because a lot of men see a wife as something they have a right to, as something that they have ownership over. And they're not necessarily saying, I value marriage and partnership and want an equal situation. They're saying, I would like to lock this down into a structure that I feel safe in. And I feel safe in a structure where I have rights and control. Um, so that was definitely a situation for me. He was, I had known bad guys before. Um, he was a different kind of bad guy. Hmm. And that's another thing to keep in mind, that just because he's very different from the last bad guy that you knew doesn't mean that doesn't mean that he's great. Um, but I was, I was very lonely and, um, you know, I spent some, I'd spent some time alone and, you know, and I thought I was kind of on my feet and ready to go, but not, but I was still, still vulnerable to it. And of course, moving very quickly and getting into a cohabiting situation and then getting pregnant, mm-hmm. 
you know, I just kind of in deeper and deeper where, you know, where the wheel I would have needed to leave was just um, growing exponentially. And, and I didn't have that. I was just kind of getting in deeper and deeper into that hole. And then I ended up in it for six plus years. Is there, without treating it as the trope of I'm going to fix the guy, is there, in your research on abusive uh, men specifically, is it... Is it something that, that they grow out of, or is it do you, you see it as something that's just like hardwired into them, that territorialism, that control, need for control? I wouldn't say it's hardwired. I mean, I think that there are some traits that men are more given to, I think, just because of biological reasons, you know, a little more aggressive, a little bit, you know, a little bit less emotive on, in some ways. But, but particularly the patterns of controlling women, though, are learned, um, are learned generally in their childhood and, and, and growing up. They tend to come from homes that had um, very traditional gender role structures. Um, often they had an abusive um, a male um, figure. Um, often, you know, their father, um, the case of my of my ex-husband, his stepfather, um, was abusive and controlling of his mother and of him and his siblings. Um, so I think it very much comes from there. Um, as far as I'm growing out of it, absolutely not. No. Um, I think I think some of them, maybe when they come of age, like, you know, moving out of the house, getting out on their own for the first time, having the freedom to develop their own beliefs for the first time. Um, some men may question everything at that point and kind of adjust their focus. I've definitely seen that where kind of guys with some sexual entitlement, nice guy syndrome, you know, once they'll mature out of that hmm. because it's just kind of a situation of maturity. But if you're talking about men, you know, in their, you know, late 20s, 30s, up to their 40s, um, that is... It's it's not a situation of maturity. It's a belief system. It's how they see the world, and um, and it was very hard for me to come to terms with the fact that it wasn't going to change because he was never going to see me as an equal. Um, it was very hard to come to terms with the fact that he didn't abuse me because our relationship was difficult. He didn't do it because he was abused. He did it because I was a woman, and this was how he believed men and women um, hmm. naturally interacted. He believed that it was. You know, that he didn't have to come to my level and, you know, open up with me and, and solve problems mutually. Um, you know, so it, it I, I don't think that they grow out of it. You know, some abusers do change, but they have to really want to. And generally, they don't see their partners as equal well enough to decide that they need to change. Like, they're not going to take advice from you. They're not going to take input from you. Um, we separated once. And... Um, and he went to therapy during that time while we were separated. That was the first time he admitted to being abusive. You know, the first time he said that he needed help, etc. And in retrospect, it's very easy to see that he was doing that because he wanted to reconcile the relationship. Um, because once he moved in, he recanted all of it. Hmm. And it was, it was horrible. How do <laughs> was, you stop that behavior from replicating in your son? If, and, um, and we could speak generally about, like, if, if a woman doesn't want her son to become like his father, like, how do you protect or how do you guide your son towards recanting that kind of structure? <laughs> well, the first thing I did was fight tooth and nail for as much custody as I could. Um, I think that, you know, kids do model what they see and they are more likely to model the same sex parent. Um, and I didn't get the situation that I was hoping for. Um, family court systems don't see domestic abuse necessarily as a reason to lose custody. Um, in my case, my ex-husband was abusive of my children from my first marriage. Even him abusing other children didn't affect custody rights because um, they said, well, that's not these children. Um, so that was the first thing I did was try to 
one of the contact. Um, but I would say the, the largest thing is I, I really stand up for myself with my kids. You know, I don't demonstrate to them that I am subservient or that, um, or that I'm, or I'm going to be pushed around or that, um, that's the case. You know, I, I think the, the mother role is really important. She's the first woman these children meet. And I think they carry that image of women, um, forward, forward and on. Um, you know, I, I have, I, I've been glad to see as my, as my, my older two are, are boys, seeing them come of age and that, um, I do see them respecting women and, you know, and I'm hoping that that is, that that's something will go forward. Um, you, you really hope and pray because ultimately you don't know what's going to happen, but I, I, I don't see my son picking up that legacy. I don't see him carrying that on. Um, my ex-husband had a very strong example for most of his life. Um, and you know, did, and didn't really, you know, his mother certainly didn't encourage the abuse, but she did believe in that, um, that kind of traditional old gender, um, picture of the woman, you know, being submissive to the husband and, um, and letting him kind of run the show. And I've never modeled that to my children. And even when the abuse was happening, it was not something that I accepted with a smile. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, so I guess the, the question is, you know, I've done my best, but I, I have no guarantee. Mm -hmm. Um, but we just do our best and we hope. Yeah, I mean, sorry for that question. That's a heavy question. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of fear and 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 just like a mother wanting the best for their child and stuff. And I could hear the weight in your voice on like. I don't have the whole. I don't have the whole answer. You know, I hope it's. You know, all you can do is hope it's enough. You know, there's these kids are growing up, and you're just putting in input, putting in input, and you don't know what's going to stick. You don't know what's going to yeah. shape their beliefs. Um, you know, and my my ex. Um, as a, another woman in his life, he cohabitates with someone, and, and and she seems great. You know, I don't have an issue with her, but I, when that happened, it really kind of planted this new fear of now my kids are going to be able to witness this happening again. Oh. They're going to see being modeled in front of them again. Um, you know, I worry about that more than anything else. Hmm. Um, that them watching this modeled in relationship, I worry that it's going to teach my daughter to be a victim because you know I don't date men, so. Um, so he it kind of is the male role model in her life um so i really hope that she doesn't doesn't pick up that controlling form of love um hmm. but you know it's kind of you know all this all this data all this noise is just kind of being talked at them and you don't know what's going to stick yeah do you see um a version of feminism that uh, avoids that or or and by feminism i just mean like a just some sort of system of ideology that would protect a woman from becoming vulnerable or like uh, maintaining her own boundaries and, and developing her own self-worth in a way that won't mm -hmm. be violated by men. Have you seen something like that that your daughter uh, would be helpful for, for not just your daughter, but again, for just right. young people growing um, up? I think, I think teaching girls agency, um, teaching them that, that they have a voice that's independent of other voices, that they um, have choices and that, that the, the life that, you know, that they're choosing is independent of what anyone else wants, what anyone else needs. Um, I was very much raised with kind of a, um, 
a push towards service. You know, I was going to be someone's wife, um, you know, if I was going to, if I was going to work, and that's a big if from the church I grew up in. Um, it was like a service thing, like a teacher or a nurse, um, you know, and I don't do that with my daughter. So um, I think it, having your, I think listening to your daughters, mm-hmm. um, encouraging them to speak and like being interested in what they have to say, um, I, letting them make, um, small choices for themselves. Um, cause like, you know, growing up, like, you know, my, my clothes were police, my language was police, what I listened to, um, who I spent time with, you know, and of course parents need to do that to some degree, but all the small decisions were, were never my decision. Um, they were my parents and maybe briefly mine on a small scale. And then they became my husband's. Um, you know, when I, first time I was married, you know, he had the right to tell me what I was allowed to read, um, what extracurricular activities I participated in. You know, I was taught from a young age that my role was secondary to men. Um, my daughter definitely is not learning that. Um, you know, so I, I think that, that that teaching girls agency and also pointing out sexism when you see it, you know, when you see, you know, a relationship on TV or in a movie um, that is clearly controlling or when you see, you know, um, someone violating someone else's rights in some small way, pointing it out to them and saying, you know, oh, he doesn't have the right to do that. That's, you know, he's not the boss of her. That's not his choice to happen. You know, and, and they pick it up. My daughter very excitedly, you know, picks up, you know, they don't get to tell me what to do like that's not um so i think that if we put that out to them you know that is instinctive for them to to get excited and to go with it but um but yeah but i I let her make some i let her make whatever small choices that she can um she it's it's probably a look down on and i'm sure that even some some viewers might have something to say but you know i've let her if she wants to play with makeup i've let her do it since she was five or six she was probably the only kindergartner that would sometimes come into kindergarten with blue lipstick Mm. you know because i wanted her to learn from a very early age that her body is for herself that it's her joy um and that you know what she wears what she doesn't wear is about about her choices you know that i'm not there to present a package for you know for someone else to approve of or accept um so so things like that but you know i'm i'm pretty confident with my daughter but but again you know i'm a parent is one person and there's a whole world a whole world with full of noise and messages and raising a daughter is terrifying Uh, (laughs) as much or more than a son (laughs) absolutely so i don't know if there's a, a particular brand of feminism outside of um just teaching her to be proud of everything that she is um of talking back to you know body image you know body image messages that you know kind of want to modify her and change her and encouraging her to be an individual and whenever someone's trying to step on her individual rights um teaching her when they're doing that um raising her with good boundaries i guess is what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. so would you mind uh if you can conceptualize or describe, and if you want to, the process of coming into your own agency, if you were constantly policed growing up, then you went to a marriage that extended that, then you were outside in the big world. I can see like going from a very tightly controlled to no control whatsoever is not tenable. Like the psyche can't like all of a sudden like be self-possessed. Like (laughs) how did you go through the process of like gaining agency and kind of like being a parent to yourself and, giving well, yourself um i did what i think it, at the time seemed very rare and precious to me but and as i hear from more women is it's really quite common um i tumbled right from my religious marriage um into the world of bdsm oh. um yeah yeah um you know there was uh, a man who 
um, a friend of a friend who kind of very specifically targeted and groomed me to that. And, you know, and I had my own interests in that. So, so it was, I, I kind of traded one model of control for a different one, um, where it was a model where I wasn't making my own decisions. I wasn't in charge of myself, but I still got to experience a lot of different things because I just found someone with different rules for me. Um, hmm. and as, and it was it was not a great experience. Um, I, I can't really recommend it. I'm not here to shame people, but it was but a lot of horrible things happened in that world. Um, but it, it really that that is the place that I learned that feminism is still relevant. Um, you know, just seeing how um, openly misogynistic that someone can be. Um, that man is the man that taught me that I needed feminism. Um, and so really, I would say that my finding of agency was breaking uh, out of that relationship, throwing that off. Um, I tried to leave a bunch of times. It took a lot of tries. Um, and, you know, but that's kind of where I, I went into myself because I, it really came down to I was going to be free or I was going to let him kill me. Um, he was I wouldn't say he was murderous, but he was reckless, and it was a very, it was a very toxic situation. Um, and so, breaking free of that was really me saying that I'm, I'm not going to have anyone watch over me anymore, tell me what to do. I'm not going, you know, I wasn't in my religion for a long time, even before I got involved in that. I'd already left my faith, um, and kind of going out there without a net was terrifying. You know, I'd never been taught any rules about the world that I could use. Everything I'd been taught was biblical and, and patriarchal. And so when you throw those away, um, you're starting from absolutely nowhere and nothing. And that's kind of when I was really bouncing around. That's when I started doing sex work. Um, and it's when I had a lot of a lot of casual connections, um, I guess you would say. Is um, that, was that a simulation of freedom or was it an exploration of freedom? Um, the BDSM or afterwards? Well, I, I guess both. Going from BDS, uh, going from fundamentalism to BDSM, it, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's swapping control. So there might be a feeling of yeah. freedom because you're doing all this explicit or, or forbidden stuff. Yeah. So there was that. Uh, but it was it's just an inversion of a control hierarchy. Absolutely. Right? And then going Absolutely. out of that into casual sex or, or relating to people via via sex and, and body ownership maybe is another yeah. form of freedom that, that at, at the same time isn't completely fulfilling? Or could you... Could you yeah, I was, I was trying to... I was definitely trying to take ownership of my body. Yeah. And, I, and I think and I think I'd done that, you know, in the BDSM situation, I tried to prove I owned it by giving it away. Um, you know, and then I did that over and over and over again. Um, you know, but if you've been raised with kind of codependent norms, yeah. you know, that's really the only measure of ownership that you understand. You've never had ownership where you choose for yourself and where you own something by taking care of it. Um, and so, and so that was very much what I did. And, and it was, it was part of my process. You know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't healthy. Um, you know, the sex work, you know, maybe, maybe to some small degree was about that, but, you know, largely was just purely situational and purely out of financial. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, absolutely. Um, but, but, but yes, you know, I, that, the, the, that time of freedom with, you know, casual sex and a lot of risk-taking behavior, um, you know, very self-destructive. Um, I was trying to, um, I, I wanted to feel that I owned myself. I wanted to feel control. Um, and I, I, I wasn't sure how to do that. Um, it's, 
it's it's very interesting trying to teach that to my kids when you know I learned that as adult in this very roundabout kind of way, and I think I'm you know I'm still learning, you know I'm still learning. Was the um, do you see the, the the sex work as you you were never prepared to have a skill in the world, and that was what was readily available to you when you needed to be independent? There were, you were not given the tools to become independent before then, and that was one means. Well, yeah, I didn't I didn't have um, skills at that time. I was in school, um, so I was in the process of you know moving towards having a degree. But um, I was I was you know towards the end of my time in school, um, and there's no I, I would have been willing to do other work I certainly would have um, but there was no child care um, so um, I didn't have custody of my kids all the time and so when I didn't have custody of my kids is when I would line up um, you know line up uh, sex work um, and it and it and it didn't make things comfortable it just kind of sometimes would put out small fires um, so I wasn't you know working anything like full-time um, but but it was something I picked up just to kind of just to just to survive and get through um, and then after I um, got out of school for a while. It was a little bit while before I got a job. Um, and so I was doing that because, um, you know, with two children, there was no child care that I could, there was no job I could get, no legal job that I could get that would have paid me enough to pay for child care. Um, the, the assistance programs in my state had waiting lists years long. Um, and even in general, jobs had um, irregular hours. So trying to set up something like, say, during their school hours would have been, you know, pretty much impossible. So, you know, so that is to a large part how, you know, mothers are economically disempowered. Hmm. Um, you know, that it's very hard to, to support children um, as, as a single parent. Do you see, I, I've been speaking with uh, people on this issue and given your position in it, do you see that there's an ethical model for sex work or do you see that there needs to be support structures on a societal level for women so that they don't have to revert to that? Um, do you, do you think that it should be banned? Do you think it should be illegal? Do you, do you have a, a stance on that? Um, I, I don't think that sex buying is ever ethical. Okay. Um, so I, I don't think there's any ethical way for a man to buy sex. Um, I don't believe that women who do sex work should be criminalized. Um, I think that we have a responsibility to make them as safe as we can. Um, and a lot of policies, I would have to um, honestly do more research and have more understanding to understand the effect that they would have on women's safety. Mm -hmm. But um, but I don't believe that a woman should ever be arrested for doing sex work. I also don't think that it should be promoted as just another job because it absolutely isn't. Um, I've never met a sex worker who did it because among these jobs that could have met her needs, she chose sex work. That's never been the situation. Um, you know, a lot of them, you know, are, I've known women who are able to do it in a pretty matter of fact way and kind of, you know, get through it and not be destroyed by it. And that's great. But it was not really a choice. They didn't, um, if they could have chosen work that, that didn't involve having sex with strange men, they would have chosen it. And I think that any, any decision, any any process, any event where a woman is having sex that she doesn't want to have is inherently something that we should try to get rid of. Um, 
I think it will always exist as long as money exists and as long as sex exists, I think it's going to exist. And we have to be realistic about that. Um, you know, and, and I don't want to shame women for it. Um, it's one of the reasons I talk about it. Um, but at the same time, um, this idea of making it a, a normal, of legalizing it, you know, regulating it, et cetera, growing it into an industry, I think is just deplorable. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's good for, for men to grow up in a world where it's just normal to buy access to a woman's body. I don't want girls to grow up with in the back of my mind. Well, if things get tough, I can always go do this. You know, that just shouldn't be, that just shouldn't be how it is. Sex should always be because you desire it, mm-hmm. not because it's something that you need to do to be okay. Um, it's extremely dangerous. Um, no matter how, no matter how you regulate it, it will always be dangerous because the most dangerous men will always be buying sex. Why do you say that? Could you could you extrapolate on that? Like, what is well, it about because, that? Is it because I mean, of power or control? Well, they're, I mean, they they're seeing it as something. Well, they're they don't mind that their partner doesn't desire them first and foremost. Like, you know, they know that she's not there because she's turned on. So, right up front, you know, that's that's just the you know the minimum necessary to get with a prostitute. Um, but also, you know, men that tend to see women as as objects to be possessed, um, as something that they have a right to, um, and when they pay money, they really think they have a right to treat them as they would like. Um, the way that you see sex work in, you know, some fantasy sci-fi type settings and these idealistic worlds where it's legal and it's consensual and it's empowering, that is not how it goes. Men have the nice romantic sex with the women they love. That's not how they treat the prostitutes they're with. Um, you know, they do the most most degrading, cruel things to the women that they pay because they paid for the right to do it. Um, and uh, so, so that's the thing. So, I think a lot of men that have these darker impulses that um, that that want to not be gentlemen all the time, that want to be um, degrading, that want to verbally abuse the woman that they're having sex with, um, they spend money in order to do that. So. And that's that's something to keep in mind. Hmm. How do you maintain um, a positive view of men if you have one after being exposed to so much, uh, I guess, toxic masculinity? Just using that phrase. I mean, men are people. Um, you know, I, I like people. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm extremely flawed. I've made mistakes, um, but. I think that in every human being, there's a great deal of promise and there's a great deal of complexity. Um, I think that to some degree, the sexes will always be a little bit at odds just because we're so different from each other in some ways. Um, and so I think that kind of accepting that, that, well, they're not going to always, they're not going to fully understand us. Um, we're not going to fully understand them. Um, goes a long way. The fact that I have, that I'm out of my, um, abusive situations where I'm able to have my boundaries um, really makes a difference. I can have a lot of compassion for people when I'm allowed to have boundaries with them. You know, when I'm not, you know, kind of subject to them <laughs> against my will, then then it's, then it's, you know, I can have compassion about them because if they start crossing those lines and I can just kind of, you know, step away and remove that person from my life. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm raising three good men, I hope. Hmm. And, you know, um, 
but you know men are half the world it would be exhausting to hit all of them well, you know, I asked that because there is, and and it again we go back to you know it's the inverse of Eminem. All these uh, op eds about why we should be allowed to hate men and the rhetoric that you see a lot like being flung around about. Um, mm. It seems like you have material cause to have resentment towards men as a class, and I, I'm wondering if you made a conscious decision not to do that because of something that. It, it, it wouldn't have a payoff and and how you think that that if it's important for other people to avoid you know succumbing to that resentment well, i i i'm kind of goal-oriented with my feminism you know i want it to work um you know, I want it to work not just for lesbians. I want heterosexual women to be able to live in feminist ways. And I want men who want to respect women to to have, you know, information about, about doing that. You know, I don't spend a lot of time trying to teach men, teach men how to be nice. But I, I want it to work. And I think it's unrealistic to just kind of declare a gender war and say that, you know, you know they're all bad and we're all good. And, and, I, and I don't think... And, and I think you really have to listen to women when they say something like, I hate men, etc. Um, there's a lot of times there's more in that statement than some blanket feeling about the sex in general. A lot of times it's saying, you know, I'm, I'm really over encountering men and having this experience. You know, a lot of them are saying, I am not going to pretend like I forgive the people that hurt me. Um, I'm not going to be a good sport about my own abuse, my own subjugation. Um, and in that response, you know, yes, I agree. You know, I, I, I believe in um, that, that, we, that, we, that we need to stop being good sports as women. And I think a lot of women who, who kind of um, feminism, who feminists who express that way, that's what they're expressing. And I'm not speaking for all of them. Some of them may literally hate all men. That's, that's for them to say. But, um, so you're no, saying that it, it, it largely is a declaration of a boundary to retain or to 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 get a return to to agency, in some way. I think it's women saying I have the right to have feelings about how I've been treated and how the world has cast me. Um, if since if since I've been a baby I have been cast in a role of subjugation and control, if I was set up to be abused over and over again, if all these men that I've trusted have done this to me. I'm allowed to have feelings about that. You know, I'm allowed to have an impression of men that I carry with me. Um, and because it's it's a lot to say to those women to say, no, you don't. You have to think that they're all great. You need to forget every experience you've had before now and realize that they're they're just as, as trustworthy as you or me. You know, it's, 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 it's giving women space um, for their experiences to be real and for them to matter. Um, I don't think that most women who, who go through that literally hate all men, you know, but um, but it's, it's a very particular experience that they're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't you, know. You I, don't seem that that's useful for you. No, no. It's, um, I mean, and it's just not true. I, I have I have men that I care about. I have men that I like. And I believe that our feminism can do something. I believe that um, that that real uncompromising feminism can make the world better. And I want it to be better, like I said, for straight women. You know, I want it to be better for, you know, the women that my sons may or may end up end up end up dating. You know, um, we live in a mixed sex world. You know, we don't live on two separate islands. You know, so I, I think that 
full, I don't know that reverence is going to see full reconciliation between the sexes, but I think that some reconciliation is good. And on the same token, um, there's always a, there's always awareness. There's always an awareness of when I'm dealing with a man, when I'm talking with a man, um, that this is somebody who who has benefited from patriarchal norms. This is somebody who has been taught, you know, to see me in a particular way. You know, there there is that that awareness, and I don't like that. Hmm. You know, I don't I, I don't I don't like that. Um, you know, I, I don't like that about you know the men that I encounter. Um, and I think that some women who kind of express, you know, hating men, they're talking about hating that, you know, they're hating that moment where suddenly the man that you were having a good conversation with, you know, feeling pretty bad, suddenly, you know, speaks down to you, suddenly disrespects you, suddenly, you know, sexualizes you. I'm not talking about you. Um, well, now I'm like, we're going to be no, really no, careful for the rest of the conversation. An experience that every woman can can has had, you know, every woman has had that experience where, you know, you have that coworker and you think they're cool and you're, and you're doing okay. And then, and then suddenly they give you the weird back rub, um, you, you know, where, where there's this, there's this sense that you can never really feel fully safe, um, with a man. And, you know, aside from the ones that you've gotten to know very well and have come to trust. Um, so there's, there's kind of a universal wariness and a universal, you know, um, self-protection that I think is healthy. Um, I wouldn't call it hatred, but some men would would probably disagree. Some men think that, you know, if, if, if you don't assume that every man you're meeting is going to be, you know, completely, you know, peer-oriented and respectful to you, that, that you're somehow um, cheating him out of a, of a fair shot at getting to know you. I, I don't know. Um, you know, so I, th- I think that if men kind of understand that, you know, that they're that they look a lot like guys that have hurt us um, and kind of, you know, have some patience and realize that we have to, we have to watch our own backs and we have to be careful. Um, you know, I, I think that that's someone where the odds comes from, mm-hmm. but no, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not terribly interested in hating men. And I honestly, I think that holding challenging men to understand us and to, um, Gosh, I, I feel like I'm talking like a liberal feminist. I just got much want to stop. But you know, I do want men to do better. Like I'm not going to hold the hand of a man who is who clearly could do these things on his own. But I, w- I would like them to do these things. <laughs> Our safety and to understand that we want to be talked to like you know like an equal. Um, you know, and and so so I so part of my feminism is believing that they can do that. Um, you know, at least to a large degree. I don't think we'll ever a hundred percent hit it because we're just we're just a little different. But um, but you know, I, I I have to be a little bit optimistic in my feminism, or I would just yeah, I would go crazy. Yeah, there's a I think that's a sign of a maturity to to hold optimism and reality, you know, or idealism and realism, kind of in this precarious balance, and understanding it's that precarious balance that keeps things from becoming totalitarian or chaotic, you know, keeps things kind of in balance. Yeah, I mean, we're just we're little tiny actors in a giant system, and we're only here for a little while, and we have very minimal impact on that system. However however much we like to think it's otherwise. So I, I, I try not to, um, I, I try to be practical about where I put my energy. And, and like I said, I do have, have three sons that I dearly love, um, which I certainly can't hurt when it comes to 
seeing seeing the best in the male species. Hmm. Well, thank you for um, allowing me to ask you personal questions and, and sharing your thoughts on life. <laughs> That's what I do. I overshare. You know, this is a perfect amount of sharing. Like, there's no oversharing at all. <laughs> okay. You brought up one thing. We don't have time for it today, but you did bring up something interesting because we, we spoke at the beginning about being more communal-oriented, but at the same time, it seemed like there was a tiny conflict about teaching your daughter to be independent. Like, how do we hold independent agency and community at the same time? Like, that seems like a huge... Uh, a yeah. philosophical question to like, how do you navigate being in a community and still having agency and like not having boundaries, but not having boundaries or having porous boundaries? Well, I mean, there's there's the boundaries of you know, you know how we how we spend community funds, and then there's boundaries of what clothes you wear and you know what you what you listen to and what you read. You know, when it comes to boundaries, we teach for feminism. We're talking about small personal boundaries because it's the small personal acts of control that really kind of establish that that abuse of control. Okay. Um, so that's I, that's what I would say. I don't want to say your name, but thank you for coming <laughs> on. Um, I will. Uh, I'll put this. Uh, I'll. I'll. I'll show you the version that I have, okay. and you can okay it. Okay. Um, and if I mean, if my name's not on it, if you want to use video, that's okay. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's it, fine. I'm, it I'm, would I'm, be great for the audience, but yeah, I'll that, use your name. Yeah, we we got to get out here and show our faces be as brave as we can be. I mean, I'd love to be out there hundred percent, but you know, like I said, I have kids yeah. and some of these people are scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I, sure. I, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I don't know how to apologize for, for that. I, I can't, but like, I, I understand how. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I just really appreciate the women who have been, been brave enough to put their name out there and put their professional reputation out there. Um, you know, women with families, women with careers. Um, I'm just, they, they have my respect so much. Um, but I appreciate you talking to me, um, even though I can't, can't do that in the same way right now. That's fine. That's fine. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.